Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. And that's on page 716 in your Red Pew Bibles. If I can just find it. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what, he was going to, what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink? will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they, came, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know, what, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among us must be your servant, and whoever wants to be, be first and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, we're now going over to Timony, Timothy, well, 1 Timothy, sorry, chapter 3, it's verses 8 to 16. Over there. That's page 840 on your Red Pew Bibles, sorry. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and, house and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, if I am delayed, 
you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar of the found, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body. He was vindicate, vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. <clears throat> Friends, let's um, just bow in prayer as we come to think about God's word. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it's so clear and so helpful and so practical. We pray that by your spirit that your word would be uh, working in our minds and our hearts, uh, informing us and transforming us to be the people that you would have us be. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In our society, holding a high position in the workplace or a position in the community uh, provides us with the opportunity to do good and to serve other people. What do you think about that? You, you reckon that statement's a little bit idealistic? Be good, wouldn't it? Be terrific. It, it would be great if that person at work who's always uh, striving to climb the, the ladder uh, <coughs> seeking after promotion, it would be really terrific if the reason that they were doing that was because they thought if they are in a higher position that they will be able to serve the well-being of others, their workmates, better. Be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be great if the person who's seeking after public office, who's going for election, you know, to be a politician, if the, the sole thing which drove them was just this passionate desire to help the well-being of the poor and the um, people who are vulnerable and so on. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Now, I guess we can't be too cynical uh, that uh, there are people who uh, seek after position uh, in order to serve the well-being of others, but I don't think you have to have a particularly profound understanding of human nature to know that that's not always the case. In fact, it's often not the case that uh, it's very often the case that people are driven by a desire for self, a desire to uh, promote themselves uh, rather than a desire to serve others. And sometimes I, I think that that kind of mindset can uh, affect us as Christians, and I'm sure that uh, some of us have come from that kind of background and that kind of mindset, and it can uh, find its way into our attitudes towards serving in church and also in other Christian ministries. I remember many years ago that I was invited to join the state council of a major missionary society. And when I was thinking it through, I spoke to a, an older minister uh, to get his advice. And I remember what he said to me. Uh, he said, uh, Scott, congratulations. That will be a feather in your cap. Now, what do you think about that? Is that right? I actually didn't think so. Because uh, I, I needed to be encouraged that this would be an opportunity for me to help to care for missionaries. 
I needed to be encouraged that this would be an opportunity for me to have a small part to play in the spread of the gospel in other parts of the world. And I'm sure that that was on his heart as well. But sadly, he was also thinking about my position, about my, my resume, a feather in my cap. Now today, uh, we're, I'm pressing the pause button on the series on Genesis. And the reason is uh, because the elders of the church have asked me to preach on a particular topic. The, the issue is that around about this time of year, generally around April-ish, April or so, that we have a congregational meeting. And at that congregational meeting, we elect members for the management committee of our church. And uh, prior to, in the weeks beforehand, we uh, invite people to make nominations for the management committee. And we do it every year, don't we? Uh, we do it every year, but each time we do it, we do so with very little formalised thinking about what the Bible actually says about the kind of people that we ought to be nominating and the kind of people that we ought to be electing. And so uh, the elders thought, well, it would be very good if every so often, maybe not every year, but every so often, uh, a month or so before the annual meeting, uh, that we might actually have a bit of a look together at what the Bible says about this topic so that our thinking, and therefore our nominations, our electing and our attitudes, uh, would be shaped more by what God's word says than by the values of our world, which may have had uh, their impact on us. Now, of course, this is a much bigger issue than the question of who should look after the buildings of our church and the furnishings of our church and the money of our church, because in our church, there are many, many roles and many ways in which people serve. The vast majority of serving in our church happens informally. Uh, it's, it's relational. It's as people get to know each other and, to, and care for one another and encourage one another in Christ and uh, help each other in practical ways. It's, you know, the, the conversation that you have with someone over morning tea. Uh, it's the going and visiting a person who's not feeling all that great or cooking a meal for the person who's just had a newborn in the, in the family. Uh, or it's, you know, that it's going for the bike rides with a brother, you know, in Christ. It's just that kind of thing. It's informal, it's relational, it's just the family of God working together in a very natural, very or should I say supernatural way, because you know what? Uh, if it wasn't for Christ, we, a group like us, we probably wouldn't be united. Uh, but it's that working together because of Christ being the basis of our lives. But there are many other more formal uh, ways in which people serve, uh, like preaching, like playing music, like leading a, a growth group, uh, like uh, being on the welcoming roster, like catering, looking after morning teas, like uh, there's a whole range of those kind of jobs and a whole stack of behind the scenes roles that you may not even know actually happen. 
Think about this. Somebody takes the garbage out every week. Somebody wheels the wheelie bins out onto the street. They come back the next day and they wheel. You didn't even know that that happened, did you? <laughs> Hadn't thought about it. There's all sorts of ministry roles, serving roles like that. And the question is, what kind of people uh, should we be appointing to serve? Indeed, it's even a bigger question than that because it's a question of what kind of people ought we to be aiming to be like ourselves. Now, one of the key passages on this issue is Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 32 to 45. It's a passage which we're going to have a brief look at today. Uh, We did look at it in more detail last year when we were wrapping up the series on Mark's Gospel. But can I get you to open up your Bibles at Mark 10, chapter 32, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 to 45. And some context here is obviously helpful. Uh, The first verse gives us the context. And that is that Jesus in his ministry had been en route to Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the place where the climax of Jesus's purpose in coming into this world would be fulfilled and as he's on route to Jerusalem there are people following him and indeed his 12 disciples are with him as well and in verse 32 onwards he takes the 12 disciples aside and he speaks to them about what would happen once he got to Jerusalem now remember that they were thinking that Jesus was going to lead some kind of a revolt. They were thinking that Jesus was going to be established as the king of God's kingdom, centred in Jerusalem. But what does he tell them instead? Well, in verses 33 to 34, he tells them that the Son of Man, that is the great king of God's kingdom from Daniel chapter 7, that the great Son of man, when he arrives in Jerusalem, the capital of God's, that he will be betrayed, that he would be handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, that he would be spat upon, that he would be whipped, that they would kill him. And three days later, he'd rise again. Now, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. For them, it just kind of didn't make much sense because the Son of Man in Daniel 7 was described as being the mighty king over God's everlasting kingdom, the king uh, to whom uh, people from all nations would come, that they would bow down and that they would worship him forever. And so all this talk about being arrested, mocked, spat upon, whipped... Uh, killed, it just didn't make any sense. And so it was much easier for them not to think about it and instead just to stay stuck on their view that this would be an earthly kingdom. And that is what prompts a couple of the disciples, James and John, to take Jesus aside when, when the other disciples weren't looking, to have a quiet word with him and to make a very bold request. Have a look at that request in verse In verse 35, 
It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Really? <laughs> really? And then they go on. When you establish your kingdom, how about making us your top two uh, men in your kingdom? You know, maybe one of us can become the prime minister and the other one can become the treasurer or secretary of defence or whatever. Now, who are they thinking about? They're thinking about themselves, aren't they? That's pretty obvious. How does Jesus respond to that? Well, verse 38. In verse 38, he says, well, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> he says, yeah, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? Now, in the Bible, to drink from the same cup as someone means to share in their suffering. Uh, to be baptised um, means to be immersed. We didn't quite achieve that last weekend with Samuel and Eloise. The water was just too shallow. <laughs> but it means to be immersed. It, it can mean to be actually overwhelmed and to be overwhelmed with suffering. And see, what Jesus is saying is, well, you want to share my glory, do you also want to share with me in my suffering? And their answer in verse 39 is, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, we can do that, no dramas. Uh, we're happy to be baptised with you and drink your same cup. They don't, they, they haven't got an idea what they're talking about, do they? James and John are self-centred. They are self-serving. And for them, it's, you know, it's like that old Commonwealth Bank TV ad. You know, the one that the most important person in the world is? Who is it? You. That's, that's, that's what they're thinking. But having said that, this negative example is actually quite useful for us because in verses 41 to 45, what Jesus does is he takes that, that worldly model of position and power and prestige and he kind of turns it on its head, he flips it, because what he's saying is this. He says, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, it's not actually about gratifying your own desires. It's not about uh, increasing your self-esteem, your ego. It's not about satisfying the things that you just want for yourself. It's not about lording it over other people. It's actually about dying to yourself. It's about becoming a slave. It's about putting the needs of others first. Now, a good way of thinking about that is that instead of being self-centred, which is, you know, like the whole world revolves around me, instead of being self-centred, we are to be other person-centred. It's a bit like, you know, the um, Copernican Revolution. I think I'm right in saying this, they used to believe that the, all of the kind of the solar system all sort of revolved around the Earth. Is that right? And then Copernicus said, no, that's actually not true. Uh, we revolve around the sun. And it, that revolution really changed people's whole understanding of the world and of life and so on. And 
It's a bit like that. This is a Copernican revolution of the heart so that the world doesn't revolve around me. Rather, I'm supposed to revolve around God and serve other people. It's sacrificial. It's costly. It sometimes hurts. But that's what Jesus meant when he asked, can you be baptised with my baptism? Can you drink the cup that I drink? The cup, of course, that he drank was the cup that he prayed about in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, when he prayed to God the Father, asking that if it was at all possible that the cup would pass from him. And the cup, as he prayed that with blood oozing from the pores of his skin, was the cup of the suffering that he would endure on the cross when God the Father and God the Son would be separated from one another as Jesus, as Paul says, became sin for us. You see, in verse 45, that's what Jesus says. In verse 45, even the Son of Man, even the great King of the God's great kingdom, even the one from whom and for whom all things have been made, even he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so that is the basis. Jesus has come to pay for our sins so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be made right with God, so that we can live a new life, not a life which is centred around ourselves, but rather a life that is centred around God and around other people. And what this means is that the sacrifice of Jesus is really the key to life. Uh, it impacts every, every aspect of our lives. It impacts how I view myself in relation to others. It impacts how we treat other people. Uh, and it takes that worldly model of power, position and prestige and it not only turns it on its head, it actually kills it because that model is completely inconsistent with the, the Son of Man who came uh, not to be served but to serve and to give his life. Now, the implications of this for serving in the church are enormous. Um, over, over the years, uh, I think I've been involved in churches for about, I don't know, 35, um, 37 or so years. I think that means I've been around the block a few times, don't you? Been minister of churches for uh, the vast majority of that period of time in multiple churches. And over the years, I've... I've known of situations where people have been appointed to positions based on two facts about them. Fact number one, they come to church. Fact number two, although that's not always the case, by the way, which is really interesting, but fact number one, they come to church. Fact number two, they happen to have some kind of, some particular skill. Uh, so they come to church and they know how to play a musical instrument. Uh, they come to church and they, they know how to do some accounting. Uh, they come to church and they kind of like hanging out with youth, that kind of thing. Now, what's missing from all three of those scenarios? 
How about the sacrifice of Jesus? Uh, are they trusting in his sacrifice for their forgiveness? And does, this, does that sacrifice shape their lives and shape their attitudes towards serving other people? Now, sadly, in all three of those areas, in music, uh, in committee of management, and in youth, I've noticed, noticed situations where the answer, from what I can see, was clearly no, that their lives were not shaped by the sacrifice of Jesus. They may not have even known and understood and appreciated the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf. And on one of those occasions, I need to confess that I bear responsibility because uh, I was involved in appointing someone to youth leadership uh, purely on the basis that he came to church and that he wanted to hang out and work with youth. Uh, we didn't know him well enough. We hadn't taken the time to get to know him. We thought we were just desperate for a youth leader and we thought he could plug the hole. We did not test him and we learnt the hard way at the potential expense of our youth that the sacrifice of Jesus did not shape this man's life. Um, that was not Peter, by the way, in case you're, you're wondering. It was actually Luke. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> No, and it was in another church, but uh, you see the point, and I bear responsibility myself because I was involved in that decision. Uh, in Acts chapter 6, the early church had a problem. Um, the problem was that as a community, they cared for the uh, physical well-being of widows who had committed their life to Jesus and who were part of the church community. And caring for the widows meant that they cared to provide food for the widows. But for some reason, for whatever reason it was, some of the widows, in fact a whole group of the widows, were being overlooked in the distribution of food. And this came to the attention of the apostles. Uh, the apostles didn't want to be doing it themselves because they wanted to commit themselves to prayer and to preaching and teaching. And they decided that some people needed to be appointed in order to do the job and to do the job in a way that was just and fair and equitable and right, and to do that job. And so what qualities did they look for in people to perform that role? Superior catering skills? Superior food distribution abilities? I'm sure those things would have come in handy, but no. In Acts chapter 6, verse 3, they looked for men who were, and I quote, known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Got that? Known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. One of them was Stephen, who in the very next chapter in Acts uh, actually did give up his life uh, physically, for the sake of the gospel, uh, when he preached the word of God to people who didn't really appreciate that. And so they stoned him to death. Full of wisdom, known to be full of wisdom, and, and the spirit. Now another helpful passage is the other passage which uh, Lachlan read for us, which is 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I wonder if I might be able to just get you to turn to that briefly. Again, it's a very familiar passage. We have preached on it here in church before. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, which you'll find on page 
840 if you read Pew Bibles. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's based in Ephesus, uh, in order to give uh, Timothy some instructions on how uh, not only to be working in the church, but to do some work on the church, which meant appointing elders and appointing people to serve so that the infrastructure was set up right, the, the trellis is put in place so that the vine can be growing and growing well. And in the first half of the chapter, uh, Timothy, uh, Paul outlines the qualities that God expects for elders of the church, those who oversee the whole of the ministry. That's not what we're thinking about necessarily today, but really good to read that. But from verses 8 through to 16, it's about deacons. Now, let me just say a word or two about the actual word deacon. Uh, it means servant. It means those who serve. Uh, and that's how it's generally translated. The, 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 for those of you who uh, know a little bit about this, it's the word diakonos, uh, or diakonoi in the plural, in the Greek. And in every other part of the New Testament, except for Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, it's always translated as servants, those who serve. And I, I think that in our translations, there's a little bit of church government has been read back into uh, the way that that's been translated, but that's for another day. But what it means is that it, it's a very general term. It means those who serve... And so, therefore, it's not just people who are on a special committee of the church. Uh, it's not just those who are on the diaconate. Uh, it actually applies to all kinds of serving within the church. But what are the qualities to look for? Well, there are two categories that Paul outlines here. And first of all, it's character. And we see that in verse 8, don't we? If you have a look at verse 8. In verse 8, uh, Paul says, Deacons, or those who serve, likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. Um, you can't have a greedy person serving in the church. Uh, you know, the person who, well, you know, he has a few too many every so often, is he the kind of person we'd put on door duty? No. No, you can't have a person who's addicted to much wine. The person who's duplicitous, the person who says one thing and means the other, the person who's not transparent, the one who's not sincere, well, no, they're not ready to be serving in the church. And the person who doesn't enjoy the respect, uh, not only within the church, but outside the church as well, uh, no, they've got a bit of work to do before they can be serving. You see the kind of stuff that's saying here? It's, it's about character. Um, in verse 11, where the NIV says wives, uh, if you care to look down on your footnote there, it also translates that as deaconesses or women who serve. 
So I don't think it's necessarily the wives of men who are serving. This can be women who are serving as well. And they should be women who are worthy of respect, not malicious talkers. You can't have someone who's just slandering and gossiping people about people. Uh, they must be temperate and trustworthy. Uh, not the person who kind of flies off the handle and not the person who you're always dubious about whether or not they can be trusted. No, they must be temperate, they must be trustworthy, not malicious talkers. And in verse 12, if a man is married, then he's only to be married to one woman. And he's got to be a faithful man, faithful to his wife. He's got to be a godly husband and a loving, family, a loving father. Uh, and in so doing, he's managing his household in the way that God wants. Now, these are all about character, aren't they? It's interesting, we often just don't think about that. Even when it comes to elders in the passage, you know, I've got a book at home which is called The, the Duties of an Elder. It's a whole booklet called The Duties of an Elder. Not once in the booklet does it actually say anything about the character of an elder. <laughs> and yet the Bible only talks about character. It doesn't talk about tasks and duties and so on. But here we're talking about those who serve in a more general sense. These are the kind of uh, character qualities that flow from the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, have a look at verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, it says, They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve. See that? Now, the deep truths of the faith. I guess if we were to summarise the deep truths of the faith, we'd say that the deep truths of the faith find their, uh, their, their, um, their fulfilment or the, the greatest expression in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so here we're not talking about someone who's a new Christian. We're not talking about someone who might be unsure of the gospel. We're not talking about someone who says, oh, yeah, I believe all of those truths. You know, I've been coming to church all my life. Of course, I believe that's assumed. No. We're actually talking here about the person who has a firm grasp of the gospel. Uh, not just in their head, not just having a knowledge of the doctrines of grace, but for that to be flowing through into their hearts and their lives so that they live the doctrines of grace, so that they live as gracious, humble, forgiving, kind, caring people and they do that because they know what it means that the son of the man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for them for them personally and so emptied of all pride which seeks position power and prestige they just want to serve God they just want to serve other people in whatever way might be helpful 
for the edification of the church and the building up of others. Now, did you notice in verse 10 that uh, Paul says that they must first of all be, what does he say? They must first of all be tested. Tested. And then, if there's nothing against them, let them serve. How do we test someone? Uh, What's involved there? Do we do it enough? I'd have to say that uh, with respect to our management committee and the whole process of putting managers on who we entrust with our money and our property, that we've actually not done very much by way of testing in the past. Uh, You get nominated, you get voted, you're on. That's it. And so because of this verse and uh, because of the other issues that uh, I've spelt out, what our elders have decided is that uh, starting from this year when someone accepts nomination to serve on the committee of management, and this year it'll only be for those accepting for the first time to serve on the committee of management, that it would actually be very appropriate for a couple of us elders to go out with them for a cup of coffee, <laughs> have a chat, uh, talk to them about the sacrifice of Jesus and the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, its place in their lives, and to talk through with them issues of of godliness, uh, how they're going in terms of their walk with the Lord, um, how's that being expressed in their family life and the way that they care for others, particularly in unseen, unofficial roles, and have a chat with them about you know whether or not it's actually a good idea for their nomination to proceed. And whilst that's new, I think it's actually very old because I think it's a kind of process that uh, Paul is actually outlining here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Make sense? Yeah. But you know what, friends, we ought not to be just looking at the lives of others, should we? Uh, You know, in a... um, Uh, Because when you look at these qualities of those who serve, is there anything there that should not apply to every single Christian person? Don't think so. I think there's normal Christian living that we should all be aiming for. And it's as we develop these these godly characteristics in our lives, then we're actually going to be far more useful in serving the Lord, serving other people, even leading other people, because you know what? Leading Christians is not about leading them to know how to be great speakers or to know how to have particular skills. It's actually about leading people to be more like Jesus. And you can't lead someone to be more like Jesus if you're not being like Jesus yourself. So we need to look at our own lives and our own character In a few moments, we're going to be sharing together in the supper of our Lord. And as we do so, we we remember that in his great love, that the Son of Man willingly suffered the judgment of God for each of us. That the Son of Man on the cross bore the penalty for all of our self-centeredness, for all of our selfishness, For all of our, well, the world revolves around me rather than God. 
kind of attitude. And he paid the penalty for our sins so that we might become, that we might experience that revolution, that we might become God-centred, that we might become other person-centred rather than being self-centred, that we might become people who, like Stephen, were full of the spirit and full of the wisdom that comes from the knowledge of Christ. In other words, that we would become the kind of people who are able to serve, to serve well and effectively, because our lives have been, have been shaped not by the values of this world, but by the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. And so that's what we celebrate in the supper. It, it uh, is an outflowing of the uh, passage from Mark uh, chap- chapter 10, and it actually expresses the kinds of things that we've been looking at in 1 Timothy chapter 3. May we be that kind of person. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you once more for the Son of Man who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We pray for each one of us that the sacrifice of Jesus would be central to our hearts, central to our lives, central to our very existence. We pray, Father God, that you would be helping us to work through those issues of character that need to change for some of us. Uh, For all of us, we'll have areas where we need to change. Help us to be people who have that same mind of Jesus, who uh, even though uh, he uh, is equal with you, that he did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but that he humbled himself and he made himself a, uh, came, came in human likeness, came as a man in order to serve others by dying on a cross. And we thank you for that. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.